We're continuing to think about mission, and we're moving into the 18th chapter of Acts as we do that today. This passage in Acts 18 is actually a passage, and this message is one very similar to one I preached right after we arrived here, just a few months after we moved to Jericho. And at that time, uh, early in that winter, we were studying uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so to set some context, we looked at Paul's arrival in the city of Corinth here in chapter 18. Now we're coming back to that, that same text in Acts 18 uh, as we're thinking about all of, of Paul's journey and mission and the mission of the early church more broadly. But I want us to notice and to think about uh, the God who is in mission with Paul. And I would argue in advance of Paul here in Acts 18. How does God show up in mission before his people? In reading this account of Paul in Corinth, it made me remember back to the first morning I woke up in the city of Tianjin. Tianjin is a, a northeastern port city in China. And about 16 years ago, on a chilly February morning, I, uh, I woke up in my apartment there for the first time after flying uh, globally, you know, across, across the Pacific, to begin work as an English teacher in that city. And I, I went there specifically with a, a job and a position as an English teacher, but I also went with the desire and the intention to join whatever it was God was doing in that city, was going with, with a an open set of hands, wanting to be led by God's Spirit. The only challenge for me was that I, up to that morning that I woke up in Tianjin, I knew absolutely no one in that city of almost 14 million people. And I was essentially a stranger. had a few uh, general acquaintances that I had set up uh, through email and through my, my work contacts in preparing uh, to start my work there. Three months prior to arriving in Tianjin, I had uh, been offered the job, I had accepted the position, and I was back in the U.S., and I began praying about what this next season of my life might look like, and I sensed God inviting me to read through the book of Exodus and to kind of meditate and, and review those, uh, those chapters for the months leading up to that, that time of departure. And in particular, the, the chapters in and around the call of Moses were, were ones that I sat with again and again. And you'll remember there's this time where Moses is off in the wilderness. He's off uh, shepherding in the deserts of Midian. And he is very alone and also very afraid. Because uh, the Lord appears to him on Sinai right in the burning bush. And he tells Moses that he wants him to go back into Egypt. The Lord, as he extends that call or that mission to Moses, responds to Moses' isolation and fear with a series of promises. He says, Moses, as you go back into Egypt, I will be with you. He says, in addition to that, I will make the hearts of the Egyptian people you're going back to favorably disposed to your mission. 
And then finally, he says, I will not send you alone, but I will send you with your brother Aaron to be a partner with you in that journey. So these are the, the chapters, the verses, the promises I'm reading and rereading as I prepare to go to Tianjin. And in the, the month, six weeks before I left, I remember routinely praying, God, go before me in this new season. God, please don't send me alone into this new season. And I remember praying specifically, give me an, an Aaron, using those words, like Moses. Give me an Aaron to make the journey with. And finally, prepare me and, and prepare a people together in that city that could be a community that I could grow together with. People favorably disposed. People hungry for your words and your mission and your purpose. So back to that first morning in Tianjin, I, I was uh, brought to the office briefly. I was introduced to about a half a dozen other colleagues. And I quickly learned that two of those six colleagues were recent graduates from a Christian university in the U.S. And I understood that, that their represented in, in these two colleagues were a like-minded brother and sister to work alongside and with. That was uh, a great encouragement to me in those first few moments on the job. Later that same afternoon, I was escorted to a local university campus where some of our work was taking place as teachers. And I was introduced to a freshman on campus who had uh, become the president of her English club. And we were talking about our partnership with that club on campus as a, as a school. And as she began to tell me about what she was interested in and what she was doing as a freshman, you know, far away from where she had grown up in China, she began to ask me if I knew anything about Bible studies or house churches in this city. She said she and her friends, they, they are all coming from different cities. They moved there and they were hungry. They were eager to know more about Jesus and to find a community where that would be possible. So already I was amazed by these first two encouragements in the first day. But to top it all off, I walked back again to the office where I was introduced to the, the office manager for our local branch of that school. And he extended his hand and he said, my surname is Chuen, but you can call me Aaron. <laughs> and we were soon to become roommates a couple weeks later was evident to me that God was in mission in Tianjin long before I ever showed up in that city. Right? Even before I slept off my jet lag, God had provided me with colleagues. God had connected me to a group of students and, and a community of people hungry to follow Jesus. And he had even given me my own Aaron to make the journey with. with. We worship, I believe, a missional God. The theologian Christopher Wright, who has written a thick book on the mission of God, he says if we pay attention to the idea of mission as it's described in the Bible, this is what we will discover, he argues. He says we will discover, we can move the slide, there we go, Mission is not, in fact, ours. Mission is God's. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, 
but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission, then, was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. I think the, the primary emphasis in that, that quotation from Christopher Wright is who mission belongs to. It's not something we initiate. It's not something we control. It's not something we direct. It is the mission of God to which we're called, for which we have been created. As we've spent the past almost five months now looking at the book of Acts, I hope that, that some of these assumptions, some of these ideas about mission are, are sort of soaking into our DNA as a people. And that we're learning to ask questions like, where is God at work? Where is he moving already in mission? Questions like, how might we join God in that place? And today I want to offer another example, another piece of evidence in Acts 18 that I think reminds us that mission is in fact about following a missional God who goes before us. Mission is about following a missional God who goes before us. So we are in Acts 18 and we are going to pick up where Paul is leaving Athens behind and he is arriving 40 miles southwest of Athens, mostly west, I guess, in the city of Corinth. As we look at Paul's arrival in Corinth, I want us to think about this. As we follow a missional God into new places, what can we expect of God in that, in that new season? And so as you think and you study and you receive this morning, I want you to think specifically about your context. Where do you sense God inviting you into mission? What's maybe the, the new horizon, the new season before you in following God into mission? And so I hope it, with that in mind, you might see what it is we can depend on, what it is we can expect from God in that space. Let me pray for us. Lord, we open our hands to you. Lord, we desire not to be a people who need to be in control. Not always even to know our next step. But Lord, that we might be a people who know whose we are and who we belong to and the one for which we have been created. And from that that place of belonging, Lord, we extend our hands and ask you to lead us today. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts as we receive your word to us, may they be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in 18, we'll pick up in verse 1. And remember, Paul is leaving a season of ministry in Athens behind. And with Athens in the rear view, Paul is leaving what would have been the, the intellectual hub of the ancient world. But he's actually, he's only traveling 40 miles, but he's traveling to what is a much larger and more economically, and, and I would argue at that time, culturally significant city in Corinth. Corinth is the big city now. Athens is sort of a city of the past. And this is what takes place. 
After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul, again, is is leaving Athens, arriving in Corinth, uh, but by this point in time in his journey, he has been alone for likely several weeks, if not many months. We don't know the exact time frame. But if you can remember back in chapter 16 of Acts, the first part of 17, uh, Paul and his friends, Silas and Timothy, they were in Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. And because of the conflict in that region, they send Paul ahead. They take him to the coast. They have him sail south to Athens. And so Paul arrives in Athens safely, but he is alone. And now, as he moves on from Athens, he continues to be alone. And he arrives in what is one of the largest cities in, in the Roman Empire. Corinth was likely a quarter million residents at this point in time. And was easily the largest city Paul had ever done mission in. Maybe the largest city Paul had ever been in up to this point in his lifetime. And as far as we can discern from Luke's account, Paul arrives in the city knowing no one. And we wonder as he he walks into Corinth if he begins to pray for some new friends, for a community, for, for support in the mission of God. Walking into town, uh, the first sort of sight Paul likely would have seen would have been the temple to Aphrodite on the the hills just outside the city. And it was was famous, some might say infamous, in in the the Roman world because of uh, its ritual prostitution. And and the whole city of Corinth as a a marketplace, as a port city, had a, a reputation across the Roman world for promiscuity. For sexual immorality. It was also a city that as he would have entered into the streets and the marketplace, Paul would discover was was a place where people came seeking to get rich quick. It was was a city built around money and new opportunity. It was a diverse city, populated in part by retired Roman soldiers who were given opportunities there by the Roman government populated by merchants utilizing the port, and also a a city built on the backs of slaves and servants brought from across the empire. So Corinth would have been a a city that was a, a wonderful place to try to earn a fortune, a wonderful place to carouse and indulge in certain kinds of pleasure if you had the, the economic capacity for it, but it seems an unlikely city, unlikely soil to plant a new church in. But Paul arrives sensing that God has invited him there as a a new leg in this mission. 
And very briefly after Paul arrives, verses 2 and 3 say that Paul is connected to a couple by the names of Aquila and Priscilla. Not only are they fellow Jews like Paul, but they are also tent makers. They share the same vocation that Paul shares in. And they had been driven some years, some months beforehand out of Rome where there had been a sustained persecution of the Jewish community there. And they arrive in Corinth, again, this this place of economic opportunity, a place to start over. They come seeking their, their own space to live and work, and they invite Paul not only to live with them, not only to work with them as a fellow tent maker, but they offer him something even more critical. Right? They become friends to Paul. They become partners with Paul in mission. Not only is Paul given Aquila and Priscilla, but we're told in verse 6, finally Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul. They come from farther north in Macedonia and they bring an encouragement, a report to Paul that those churches that they had helped to plant are surviving, they're growing, they're doing well. And we're not told specifically in the text, but it seems implied that they probably also bring a financial gift with them from the church in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And it's, it's from that contribution likely that Paul is able to give his attention full-time to ministry, to preaching, to teaching in the community. So despite having arrived in Corinth by himself, we now see Paul surrounded right, by a group of men and women seeking the kingdom of God in this new city. I think Luke is telling us that God has proceeded. God is orchestrating. God is arranging things in Corinth even before Paul has arrived. I think that is the first point I would offer to us. That if we follow a missional God, I believe his intention is nearly always, jump ahead here, to supply us with a community for that work. To provide allies for us in the mission he's given us. Mission, I believe, requires partnership. And so there, there may be a sense sometimes where we feel isolated in the mission God's given us. We feel lonely in the things we've been called to by God. And, and that might persist for for a short period of time, but I would suggest if that continues for for a sustained season, then we might ask ourselves, what's happening? Why is that taking place? Perhaps maybe we're out of step with God's mission. Because I think God's desire is nearly always to supply us with people to partner alongside us. We cannot be sustained in mission without community, without partnership, without support. So in addition to asking you, where is your next step? Where is God leading you in mission right now? I'd also ask you, who are your partners in mission right now? Who are you walking with? Who's walking alongside you? Who's encouraging you? As you move further into chapter 18, we see that Paul needed that support. He would depend upon that support because quite quickly the hostility of of the synagogue in which he is teaching 
comes and is directed against him. In verse 6, we see they attempt to drive he and his friends out of the city. Verse 6. But when the synagogue leaders opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and he said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. There is, I think, a remarkable shift, a remarkable turnaround in these few verses for Paul's experience in Corinth. As Paul is thrown out of the synagogue by the leaders there, we sort of suspect from what's happened in other places, in other cities, that Paul might quickly need to leave Corinth to find a new city to preach in. But unexpectedly, as the the doors of the synagogue close on Paul and his new friends, we're told that the doors open across the street, adjacent to the synagogue, in the home of a a God-fearing Gentile named Titius Justice. And by his name, we can presume that he was a a Roman, uh, a Roman person, a person of Roman descent. Maybe one of those uh, military officials who was resettled and and retired to the, the, the community there in Corinth. Whoever he is, he opens the doors of his home to, to sort of foster and, and protect this new house church. We're told not only do we have this Roman household opening its doors, but in verse 8, quite quickly, one of the leaders of the synagogue across the street comes over to join them. A man named Crispus and his entire household believe in the Lord. What's more, many more Gentile Corinthians come to hear and believe Paul's preaching, that Jesus is, is the anointed one, the Messiah. So I think the question is, well, what, what causes that turnaround, that dramatic shift to take place? So that Paul moves from maybe fleeing the city of Corinth to instead now having synagogue leaders meeting together with Roman military figures, meeting together with other Greek-speaking Gentiles in somebody's living room. Think maybe it's because the mission in Corinth was God's idea, not just Paul's. He not only gives us partners for mission, but God supplies us with a people to be in mission among. And look at the vision that that Paul is given in verses 9 and 10. There Paul is promised that God is with him, that he does not need to be afraid, that he may continue to speak, 
And that the reason is because there are many people, the Lord says, in this city who are mine. People who belong to me, says the Lord. I think that is the second principle, the second idea that we can depend upon. If we are in mission with God, following the missional God we worship, he will supply us with partners and he will prepare for us a people a community, a group of people to be in mission among and to. Who are the people then in this city, in this place, that God might be preparing? And how do we make ourselves available to them? How do we make our lives inviting and open to receiving them as God might move among them? I suspect that in the the Northeast, in New England, we've become so used to being a a shrinking church, a shrinking community, that I don't know if we still truly believe or assume that God is preparing people to be drawn toward his work. Do Do we actually believe that there are people in Jericho today, or Underhill, or Essex, or Richmond, or Colchester, or Shelburne, or Huntington, or Winooski, Do we believe that God cares for those people, that his spirit is in mission among them, and that he might be drawing and preparing their hearts to long for the good news of who Jesus truly is? I think we need to maybe re-correct our assumptions. The true missionary force at work in any community, the true missionary force at work in Corinth is the spirit of God, right, preparing things. All we do, all Paul and Aquila and Priscilla and Timothy and Silas do is, is simply sort of show up and bear witness to that work. And with the encouragement that God cares for this city, that God is at work in this city, that God has people in this city, Paul remains in Corinth for another 18 months. Right? It's an extended stay. As we finish this morning, I want to look at one final incident, one final detail of Paul's initial visit there to Corinth. We see that God provides partners for Paul. We see that that God prepares a people for Paul in Corinth. And that God also protects the work of mission in this young church as it begins to grow. Look at verses 12 through 16. It says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. They brought him to the the bema, the the place of judgment before the proconsul. They said, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor, or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so Gallio drove them off. Again, this is an unexpected scenario for Paul. 
Right? He's no stranger to public confrontations before being dragged before leaders. Paul's been through this before, and he is, we're told, readying his defense here in verses 12 through 13. Right? He's, he's been brought before Gallio, who is the proconsul. He's the judge. He's the arbiter of that city. And, and the local community is hoping to secure a ruling against not only Paul, but against the community that's formed around his preaching. Right? In order to sort of ensure that any other additional uh, followers of Jesus who, who spring up would be suppressed or, or no space would be made for their message, their, their practice of religion in that city. But notice as Paul prepares to use his words to, to make his own defense, before he can open his mouth in verse 14, something incredible precedes him. Right? The proconsul Gallio throws out the charges. Not only does he dismiss the charges, but he orders the crowd gathered against the church in Corinth to disperse. And in verse 15, he refuses, he says, to be a judge of such things, which is sort of ancient legal speak for, I'm not going to weigh in on the matter, right? This, this has no standing, no precedent. I'm not interested in rendering a decision against this new community of people. And it's, it's that implicit sort of uh, ruling by Gallio that permits the, tr- the church, the, the Christian community in Corinth, uh, to grow and to flourish and to carry on. How amazing is that? And a missional God provides partners, a missional God provides and prepares a people, and now a missional God protects his mission. He protects that group of people so that the mission can continue. With that indirect protection, Corinth grew to become one of the the largest and most significant churches in the first century. We also know that if we read the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's one of the most contentious and one of the messiest churches Paul happened to be part of as well. But I also wonder if, if that's not why God made it so clear when things were just beginning in Corinth that the, the church was God's idea, that it belonged to him first, that God initiated this work, not Paul. Because I'm sure if you, if you read through 2 Corinthians, certainly, you'll see Paul is often tempted to doubt that work, to doubt the foundations that were laid, to wonder why all this work for people that seem to be tearing each other apart. But he could come back to, he could remember that God initiated, God arranged, God orchestrated this work. It not, it not only belonged to him, it belonged to his missionary God. If God sustained and protected the church in Corinth for 18 months so that Paul could stay on there, what are we to make of the fact that God has protected and sustained a church in Jericho for 230 years? Right? We, could, we could think about that in a few ways. Right? Our, our permanence, our stability, we could say that's comfortable. We could rest on the, the laurels of that. But if God has protected and sustained a church, then I also believe that's an indicator that God desires that church to continue moving forward in mission. It's a mandate of God for us to keep moving forward, keep moving toward the people God is drawing and preparing for himself. If God has protected us, he has a purpose 
for us. Purpose we do not want to forfeit. And he has sustained a church in this place for his mission. So my prayer is that God might help us to know what our next step is, what your next step is. That God might also help you to recognize who the partners he's supplied to you are for that next step. That he might give you a heart and a desire for a group of people to be in mission among and for and toward. And that he might also help you rest in knowing that that he surrounds you, that he goes before you and behind you in that work. Let me pray for us this morning in conclusion that we would be a people who, who reflect accurately the character and the name and the mission of our God. Jesus, I'm amazed as we read the Gospels, as we read Acts, as we read the epistles in the New Testament, and then as we read the, the history of the church throughout, throughout time, of, of the way that you release mis- mission in, in so many different directions, through so many different groups of people. Lord, your mission moves powerfully through women and men, through wealthy households and through servants and slaves. Lord, your mission moves powerfully not only in Palestine, but among the the Gentile world. It moves into Africa. It begins to move eastward into Asia. Lord, your mission is global. Your mission is, is to make one people out of the many sons and daughters of Adam. Lord, we pray that in a similar way that the mission in Jericho would be diverse, that you would release, you would empower, that you would call us to notice all the things, all the places, all the desires you have as a missional God. And to be willing to step forward in following you to be humble and open enough to receiving and asking for help and partnership in that work. Lord, to be sustained by your Spirit's presence among us. Pray you would lead us. Pray you would fill us. We pray that these things would be for the glory and the worship of your name for which you have prepared us. Amen.